Brothers and sisters, as we come to God's word this morning, I, I want to face you with the question rhetorically, who killed Jesus? Who was responsible for the death of Jesus of Nazareth? To ask that question actually plunges us into the middle of an age-old tension that exists between two biblical truths, frankly, truths that we cannot fully reconcile in our own puny, finite minds. The one truth is the absolute sovereignty of God. From reading your Bible, are you convinced that God is absolutely sovereign, that nothing happens outside his control? Are you convinced that that sovereignty even extends to salvation, that God is the one who ultimately determines who is saved by his grace? I cannot get around Statements such as John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me shall come to me. He who comes to me, I will not cast out. There was a people given by the Father to the Son. When? In eternity at some point. I can't get around. John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. I can't get around Romans 8.30, those whom he predestined, these he also called, these whom he called, he, he also justified, and these whom he justified, he also glorified. I can't get around Acts 13, 48. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Who believed? Those who were first appointed to eternal life. I can't get around Ephesians 1, 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. God is absolutely sovereign. And yet equally true is that man is fully responsible and accountable for his decisions and choices. And so we read in Romans 9, 18 and following, the Apostle Paul tells us, he says, So then he, God, has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. Sovereign mercy. But then he says, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? Wait a minute, if God decides, then how can we find well, how can he find fault with us if it's his sovereign will that determines it? And then he answers, on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? And he basically says, zip it. End of argument. God is sovereign. Man is absolutely a free moral agent in the sense that he is fully responsible for his decisions. Now put that together. You can't. I can't. No theologian can but I say we need to embrace both truths because they're both taught in the Bible. Well, this tension between God's absolute sovereignty and man's full responsibility faces us when we seek to answer that question, who is responsible for the death of Jesus? Because the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost says these words in Acts 2.22, men of Israel, listen to these words, Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. Listen to this. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Who killed Jesus? In a sense, it was the will and plan of God the Father the predetermined plan of God to put Jesus to death, a plan to which Jesus agreed in what theologians call the covenant of redemption. But he also implicates people, doesn't he? 
Jesus was delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, but you, you, my Jewish countrymen, you put him to death, and you did it by the hands of godless men, referring to the Romans. So humanly speaking, historically speaking, both Jews and Gentiles, the two biblical categories, were both responsible for the death of Jesus. The whole world is responsible for the death of Jesus, humanly speaking. Now, why do I say all of that as an introduction? I do because we come to that place in our study of Mark's gospel, we come to the place in his narrative where Jesus is sentenced to die. And what is highlighted are the human players that historically were responsible for the death of Jesus. Matthew 15, 1 to 15. We'll actually take two sermons to get through this passage, one this morning. Matthew, Mark 15. Early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and scribes and the whole council immediately held a consultation, and binding Jesus, they led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Pilate questioned him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You are saying. The chief priests began to accuse him harshly. Then Pilate questioned him again, saying, Do you not answer? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer. So Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them any one prisoner whom they requested. The man named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the insurrection. The crowd went up and began asking him to do as he had been accustomed to do for them. Pilate answered, them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he was aware that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to ask him to release Barabbas for them instead. Answering again, Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? They shouted back, crucify him. But Pilate said, why? What, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. Wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them, and after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. There are three players historically responsible for the death of Jesus, Pilate, the priests, and the people. This morning, we want to look at Pilate's role in sentencing Jesus. The first thing I want to see is Pilate's conviction. And my point here is that it was Pilate's conviction that Jesus was innocent of the charges leveled against him by the Jewish leaders. You see, the Jewish leaders quickly gather and have a consultation after their late night trial. I'll say more about that when we talk next time about the role of the priests. But they pass a death sentence upon Jesus, then they bind him and they deliver him to Pilate. Why did they deliver him to Pilate? Well, the city of Jerusalem and the province of Judea was a subject territory of Rome. It was under Roman jurisdiction and the Roman provincial leaders that were called procurators or prefects. And Rome, the Romans supervised matters of legislation, justice, and government. In actuality, they gave the Jews a lot of freedom for self-government. They allowed them to try civil cases, even some capital crimes, and they even allowed them to pass a capital death sentence, but they could not carry out the sentence. The Romans reserved for themselves the power of the sword. Only the Romans could execute someone. 
And so the Jews wanted Jesus killed, but in order to have that happen, they needed the Romans to sign on to that, so they deliver him over to Pilate. Now, Pilate had the authority to either affirm their decision or to overturn it. When Jesus was um, before Pilate in John 19.10, Pilate says to Jesus, do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? He could have gone along with the decision of the Jewish high court or overturned it. So Pilate interrogates Jesus. Verse 2, Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? And the way the Greek has it, the you is put forward for emphasis. And it begins to give us a hint that Pilate is rather skeptical about these charges. You, the king of the Jews? You see, the accusation was that Jesus was some sort of an an insurrectionist like Barabbas, that he was some sort of revolutionary. And as Pilate looked at Jesus, who was standing in front of him, he didn't look the part. Now, physically, his face would have been swollen from the punches, perhaps bloody. His hair may have been matted by the spittle that was directed at him. But also, Pilate may well have seen in Jesus a serenity, dignity, in his countenance that was very unzealot-like. Pilate was familiar with zealots, these insurrectionists, these Roman-hating rebels against the Roman government. He was probably very familiar. Actually, he had one in his custody then, Barabbas. Pilate would have been familiar with the curled lip of scorn, the glare of the fiery, hate-filled eyes, the facial muscles contorted into a scowl, and the cocky air of these Roman-hating insurrectionists. He knew that look, and he didn't see that in Jesus at all. He didn't see that hateful anger in the countenance and demeanor of Jesus. You're, you're the king of the Jews? Maybe Pilate already knew something about Jesus. Commentators speculate that he might have sent his scouts out into the community uh, to kind of scout out what was happening among the people under his jurisdiction, and no doubt they had brought back reports of him. And there was no report of Jesus being a rabble-rouser, you know, trying to stir up the society against Roman government. If anything, they would have heard, yeah, he's a, this rabbi's going about purportedly healing people and teaching and doing good. He's not a, an enemy of, of Rome. And Pilate might have known that. Well, to Pilate's question, are you, you the king of the Jews? Jesus answers, but his answer is qualified. He doesn't give a full-throated yes, but he gives a qualified yes. You are saying, see, he doesn't deny it. He can't deny it. Is Jesus a king? Yes. He's the ultimate king. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He came to bring a kingdom. And so he couldn't say he wasn't a king. But the Jews had painted a picture of Jesus that he was some sort of a rebel, some sort of a political revolutionary, that kind of king. And that was not true. So he couldn't fully affirm that he was the kind of king the Jews were making him out to be. So Jesus, in his perfect wisdom, answers in a qualified way. Are you the king of the Jews? You say, you're saying that I am. Well, at that point, the Jews kind of panicked because I think they sensed that Pilate was skeptical about the charges, that maybe Pilate wasn't believing what they were saying about Jesus. And so in verse 3, we read, the chief priests began to accuse him harshly. 
They saw that Pilate was waffling, that Pilate was skeptical of the charges that they were bringing against him. And so they ratcheted up their charges against Jesus, no doubt repeating the charges they had already brought and maybe adding others, maybe talking over one another with a loud clamor, with vehemence and with insistence, trying to accuse Jesus in front of Pilate. To which Pilate exclaims in exasperation in verse 4 to Jesus, do you not answer? See how many charges they bring against you. Pilate understood this was serious. It was a death penalty they were asking for. And he's saying, Jesus, don't you have any answer to these things? But the real clincher that tells us that Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent is given to us in verse 10. In verse 10, we are told, he, Pilate, was aware that the chief priest had handed him over because of envy. Pilate knew that the real motive behind the Jewish indictment of Jesus was envy. They were jealous. He was attaining too much power, too much control over the people, and they were jealous of that. And Pilate apparently had enough savvy, enough psychological insight that he saw through the pretended charges of the Jews. He saw through to the heart issue. Now, how did he arrive at that insight? Well, it would have been helped by the fact that Jesus certainly didn't look the part of a rebel, a freedom fighter, an insurrectionist. That might have helped. He wasn't a stereotypical freedom fighter. But some commentators speculate that it takes one to know one. You heard that saying? And they speculate that Pilate himself, well, probably not much speculation, Pilate himself was a manipulative opportunist of a man. He knew how to work the system to get ahead in the bureaucracy of Rome. And it could well be that he saw something of himself in them. I know how I operate, and I understand these guys because they're probably doing the same thing I am. You know, they want to get ahead. They want to maintain their power and position. Jesus is a threat to that. And I know how to work the system, and it could be that it takes one to know one, and he read them because he saw himself in them. But however Pilate came to the conviction, he was clearly convinced that Jesus was innocent. And if we read the other Gospels, and I hesitate to bring in the other Gospels because we're preaching through Mark, but if you've read the other Gospels, you know that Pilate believed Jesus was innocent. All right, let's move to Pilate's custom. Pilate had a custom, verse 6 says, Now, at the feast, he, Pilate, used to release for them one prisoner whom they requested. This was a custom. Um, Some believe that it was done only at the Passover feast. We don't know for sure, but it may have been because the Passover was a time when God passed over the Jews. He spared them judgment when he brought judgment upon the Egyptians. Wouldn't this be a good way to commemorate God's passing over the Jews and sparing them judgment if Pilate would spare someone who was under judgment, a prisoner? So however it came to be, there was this custom that at the Passover feast, Pilate would agree to release one of the prisoners to uh, the people. Now, this year, Pilate would have probably been very thankful for that custom because he was really trying to get Jesus off the hook. He was convinced that Jesus was innocent, and this would have gotten him off the hook. Now, at this point, Barabbas is introduced into the narrative. 
He was in Roman custody, and he was a true insurrectionist. He was a true zealot, a freedom fighter, one who had participated in murder in his fight against the Romans, no doubt killing Romans, and he was in, Jew, in uh, Roman custody. No doubt Pilate would have thought, because of the notoriety of this insurrectionist, Barabbas, because of the gravity of his crimes, he was a murderer, and maybe because of the popularity of Jesus, surely when I throw it out to the crowd, they're going to choose Jesus. They're going to they're say, yeah, release Jesus, the, the king of the Jews, release him. But Pilate was wrong. Pilate miscalculated. He didn't anticipate the activity of the chief priest to stir up the hearts of the people, and he probably underestimated the animosity in the hearts of the Jews toward the Romans. Perhaps in their eyes, Barabbas, this anti-Roman rebel, was even a hero. And so the people clamor, give us Barabbas, release Barabbas. And so Pilate's plan is frustrated. Let's look, thirdly, of only four points, Pilate's conscience. We see that Pilate believed that Jesus was innocent of the charges. And he really wanted to release Jesus according to this custom. Let's take a, a deeper dive into what's happening inside of Pilate. Because much like Herod Antipas, who executed John, he's a study of a man who was tortured and torn on the inside. He was of two minds. Remember John or Herod Antipas? He, he loved to hear John. He respected John, but he caved into the people. Tremendous battle inside. In two minds, Pilate is similar. On the one hand, we, we can see conscience at work in Pilate. What is conscience? I think we can define conscience, and we all have one, this way. Conscience is the mind serving in the function of jury and judge to pass judgment on our behavior in light of a standard. It's not so much a faculty in us as it's a function. It's a function of your mind passing judgment upon your behavior based on a particular standard. That's what conscience is. That's what conscience does. Now, Romans chapter 2 tells us that the works of the law are written upon our heart, that God has instilled in everyone made in his image a basic sense of moral right and wrong. Can't escape that. It's inbred into us, the works of the law written on our heart. Everybody has a basic sense of right and wrong. And so here's how conscience functions. When you act in accordance with what you know is right, then you have a good conscience, right? You have a clean conscience. You feel good. When you go act contrary to your conscience, to what you know is right according to that standard, you have a guilty conscience, you have a bad conscience, and we have all experienced both. And Pilate's conscience is clearly active here. He was made in God's image. He had a conscience, and he had a basic sense of right and wrong. He had a basic sense of justice. And his mind was telling him that Jesus was innocent. He didn't fit the profile or the stereotype of an insurrectionist. He knew these Jewish leaders. He knew that envy was the real motive by which they had sentenced him. And we read 
in verse 5 that when Jesus didn't answer, Pilate was amazed. That's an interesting statement. But Jesus made no further answer. So Pilate was amazed. It's astonished. And you get the sense that Pilate sensed that I'm certainly not dealing with the typical stereotypical freedom fighter here. And I may not even be dealing with someone who's a merely human person. There's something extraordinary about this man that stands before me. Pilate was astonished. And so conscience is at work, and he he makes efforts to release him. And if you read the other Gospels, it's even more profuse as to how hard Pilate worked to get Jesus off the hook. So Pilate's conscience is at work. His conscience is telling him, this man is innocent. This man is not guilty of the charges brought against him. But then we want to see, finally, Pilate's cowardly compromise. He's trying to, desperately trying to get Jesus off the hook. But the first hint of his cowardice might be seen in verse 4, where he says to Jesus, do you not answer how many things, how many charges they bring against you? Do you see? He's saying, Jesus, come on, Jesus, defend yourself, vindicate yourself, get me off the hook here, Jesus. I know you're innocent. Will you please speak on your own behalf? And then he defers to the crowd. He turns it over to the crowd, verses 12 to 15. Answering again, Pilate said to them then, well, he asked, who shall I release? And they asked for Barabbas. And answering again, Pilate said to them then, what shall I do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? They shouted back, crucify him. But Pilate said to him, you see, He's convinced he's innocent. He doesn't want to implicate Jesus. He doesn't want to sentence Jesus. But why? What evil has he done? You haven't produced any witnesses. You haven't produced any facts. You haven't convinced me. But they shouted all the more, crucify him. And here's the clincher. Wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them. And after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. The cowardly compromise of Pilate. Conscience was speaking to him. He's innocent. You can't condemn him. But then, wanting to please the people, he knew that if he acted contrary to the people, there could be a riot. What did he choose? He didn't choose to go with his conscience. He chose to go with pleasing the people. And if we pull in statement in John's gospel, listen to this. In John's gospel, um, the Jewish leaders, this was their trump card. If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. That was the straw that broke the camel's back for Pilate. If you release Jesus because he's a rival king, you're an enemy of Caesar. And Pilate thought, "Uh uh-oh, my job's going to be on the line now. And he loved his position. He loved his power more than he loved justice and righteousness. And so Pilate shows himself to be a coward in his compromise. He wasn't ruled by principle. What was the ruling principle in Pilate's heart and life? It was self-interest, self-protection, protection of his position, of his power, and his authority. Oh, I do have one more point. Sorry. 
but it's short. Pilate's culpability, okay? Culpability means guilt. Pilate was guilty. When Peter said, you put him to death by the hands of godless or wicked men, Pilate was obviously one of them, the chief one. He sentenced Jesus to die. He was one of the wicked Romans that Peter refers to in his Pentecost sermon. Pilate was clearly guilty by that. But there's something in our text also that makes it clear that Pilate was guilty. Coming back to verses 4 and 5, Pilate questioned him, you, uh, saying, do you not answer, seeing how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer. The silence of Jesus. It's the second time we see the silence of Jesus, right? We saw his silence before the Sanhedrin. He did not honor them by answering at first. And here again, Jesus is silent. And the original Greek is emphatic. Uketi uden. It's a double negative. No more, no further. Nothing did he answer. Now, I think many of you know this, but in English, if you use a double negative, it becomes a positive. If I say, I don't know nothing, you know, kind of crude English, but that means I know something. I don't know nothing. Two negatives make a positive. I know something. But in Greek, when you have a double negative, it just strengthens it. And so he answered absolutely nothing. He gave Pilate absolute silence. Why this silence? Jesus knew that Pilate knew that he was innocent. But Jesus knew something else about Pilate, evidently. He knew that Pilate was not a man of principled righteousness. He knew that Pilate was not a man with the courage of his convictions. He knew that Pilate was not a man to uphold the justice he knew was due to Jesus. And so he gives him silence. It's a loud silence. It's an eloquent silence. It's an accusing silence. It is an indicting silence. It's a silence that says, I don't need to defend myself, Pilate, because you know in the core of your being that I'm not guilty. And you know that you will be guilty of condemning me. So the silence of Jesus that brought forth astonishment from Pilate confirms the culpability or the guilt of Pilate. So that was Pilate's role in the sentencing of Jesus to death. Let me make three applications. First, Pilate's confession of Jesus as innocent should give us an encouragement to our faith. Think about it. Here is a pagan Roman. No respect for Yahweh, the true and living God. And Jesus of Nazareth stands before him face to face. And his conclusion by his natural conscience, this man is innocent. I say, if a pagan Roman standing in the presence of Jesus can come to the conviction that Jesus is guiltless and innocent of those charges, how much more should we affirm the sinless purity of the Son of God, our Savior, and worship him, and adore him, and trust him. If a pagan Roman could say, I find no guilt in him, how much more should we recognize the beauty of his purity and his sinlessness? So it's an encouragement to our faith. God has ways of 
ironically having various ones give him honor. Remember when Jesus came into Jerusalem and people were, were acclaiming him and uh, the, the Jewish leaders were complaining about that and he said um, something to the effect that if, um, if, that if possible, the very stones would cry out in praise to him. God has ways of getting praise and glory for himself from unlikely sources. And here this pagan Roman ruler affirms the innocence of Jesus. But secondly, I think we can learn from Pilate's compromise of conscience. We learn that we need to guard our own conscience very carefully. Pilate overrode his conscience. He did not listen to his conscience. By the way, he didn't listen to his wife either. I just say that as a side note from another gospel. And men, you're generally wise to listen to your, your wife. He didn't. She had a dream. Have nothing to do with that man. He ignored that. Maybe more importantly, he ignored the voice of his conscience. We need to guard our consciences very carefully. Your first duty and mine toward our conscience is to rightly inform it. Conscience is not an infallible guide. We don't buy into Jiminy Cricket theology. Let your conscience be your guide, right? From Pinocchio. No, no, no. Your conscience is not an infallible guide. Why? Because your conscience can be misinformed. And so our first duty toward our conscience is to program it, to calibrate it rightly. And how do we do that? According to the word of God. If we don't calibrate our conscience according to the word of God, we may feel guilty when God doesn't want us to feel guilty. And we may not feel not guilty when God wants us to feel guilty. A good example would be our Amish friends. Most Amish, they would feel terribly guilty if they drove a vehicle, if they had electricity in their home from the, the, the power grid. Why? Because it's sin? No. Because they've been conditioned by a false system to think it's wrong, and they feel guilty wrongly. But when, like Brother Merv and others, you know, they come to the light of truth, they realize, I can drive a car, I can drive a van, I can drive a 15-passenger van. One of my Amish friends, he bought a red van, and that would have been too showy for the Amish. But he told me, well, I just consider it the color of the blood of Jesus. And he justified riding around in a flashy fire engine red van because his conscience was freed by the word of God. So the first duty to conscience is to condition it, calibrate it according to the word of God. And then our second duty is to obey it. And, you know, even though conscience is not an infallible guide, it's always wrong to go against conscience. Because you're going against what you think is right. And so you always need to obey conscience. And as I mentioned last week, Paul's words in Acts 24, 16, I take pains always to maintain a good conscience toward God and toward all men. Is that your practice? It needs to be our practice. Pains, careful to always maintain a good conscience. Whenever there's a twinge of conscience, that we think we've done something wrong or actually have, we need to deal with it, deal with it in repentance, deal with it in confession, make it right, appropriate the blood of Jesus and go on. Don't ignore conscience. Paul says some have rejected conscience and they've made shipwreck of their faith. Pilate certainly did that. We don't want to do that. And there are a number of ways that conscience speaks to us from reading his, the word. That's why it's so important to read the word on a regular 
daily basis. Feed your mind with the word of God to bring conviction, to bring repentance, to bring cleansing, to bring growth. Hearing messages preached, you can control somewhat what you're reading in the Bible. You can't control the preacher. I guess you can. You can fire him. But, but there's a sense in which I'm going to preach the word to your conscience, and hopefully it's accurate, and that's a means of conviction. You know, sometimes the humbling circumstances of life just show us our sin, right? We just get beat up by life. Man, I made stupid decisions, and I'm paying for it. We need to pay attention to that. Sometimes we receive reproofs and corrections from other people, friends and foes, and it speaks to our conscience. The point is, don't reject your conscience. Don't minimize your conscience. Don't dull your conscience. Be like Paul, who takes pains to maintain a good conscience always toward God and toward all people. And then finally, Barabbas' release is a good picture of Jesus taking the place of sinners like us. Barabbas was an unlikely candidate for release. He was a criminal, and his crimes were patent and serious. He had committed murder, and he was a rebel against the government. He was an unlikely prisoner to be released. He was probably an unsuspecting candidate for release. He probably thought, there's no way I'm getting out of this Roman jail. I'm going to end up like so many other thousands on one of those Roman crosses of execution. An unlikely candidate, an unsuspecting candidate for release. But one day, a Roman servant is sent from the governor to Barabbas' cell. And he announces to Barabbas that he can go free. Hey, man, pack up your bags. You're going home. What? What what do you mean? You must be joking. No, I'm not joking. Pack up your things and get out of here. But, but, But how? Oh, you know that custom? Pilate is allowed to release one man at the feast of the Passover. And Pilate gave the people a choice. There was this other guy named Jesus. Says he's a king. And Pilate wasn't really convinced. And he wanted to free him, but you know the people, unpredictable, fickle, and they chose you. Well, what about the other guy? What, what, what about that guy, Jesus? What happened to him? Well, he's a goner right now. They're preparing to have him crucified. So Barabbas walks out free, totally acquitted of all charges, though plainly guilty. And Jesus of Nazareth goes to a cross of execution. What might Barabbas have thought? Did Barabbas attend the crucifixion? Did he look at that man dying in the middle and say to himself, that could have been me. That should have been me. That would have been me. But he's dying in my place. Friends, that's the gospel, isn't it? Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless lamb of God was he. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah. What a savior. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for the very clear illustration of substitution that we have in Barabbas. 
a man destined to die, deserving of death, but he was set free because you, Jesus, in space-time history took his place upon the cross. Thank you that you took our place through our trust in you and that we are totally free, totally guiltless in your sight, totally justified and completely destined for heaven with you when we die. Thank you, Lord Jesus. If any are here among us who have not trusted you, please help them to understand that they will either have to suffer and die for their own sins eternally in hell, or they could allow your son to pay for them. Grant them faith in him to be their savior. We ask in his name,